In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father Brendan Kilcoyne, uh, coming to you again from Immaculata Productions. The last week we talked about the teaching profession, really, in the Catholic context. The whole thing of Catholic teaching, Catholic education. Under the overall headline of, of doing the faith, doing Catholicism. So parenting, teaching. And today, you may be surprised at the, the heading, but this is storytelling. And it, this may sound a little frivolous, but it's not frivolous. We just perhaps could start with a, a reflection from Flannery O'Connor, the American novelist who's quite topical at the moment for reasons I'll mention later. And this is a short story by O'Connor entitled Revelation. Mrs. Turpin in this story has been at the local clinic and waiting to see the doctor. There's a description of the people who are waiting in the waiting room. And this is absolutely crucial because it outlines a background for what is to come. Next to the child's mother was a red-headed youngish woman reading one of the magazines and working a piece of chewing gum, held for leather, as Claude would say. Mrs Turpin could not see the woman's feet. She was not white trash, just common. Sometimes Mrs Turpin occupied herself at night naming the classes of people. On the bottom of the heap were most coloured people, not the kind she would have been if she had been one, but most of them. Then next to them, not above, just away from, were the white trash. Then above them were the homeowners, and above them the home and landowners to which she and Claude belonged. Above she and Claude were people with a lot of money and much bigger houses and much more land. But here the complexity of it would begin to bear in on her, for some of the people with a lot of money were common, and ought to be below she and Claude. And some of the people who had good blood had lost their money and had to rent, and then there were some coloured people who owned their homes and land as well. There was a coloured dentist in town who had two red Lincolns and a swimming pool and a farm with registered white-faced cattle on it. Usually by the time she had fallen asleep all the classes of people were moiling and roiling around in her head and she would dream that they were all crammed in together in a boxcar being ridden off to be put in a gas oven. Flannery O'Connor, Revelation. O'Connor, as I've mentioned before, is a fantastic storyteller. Very well-educated young Catholic woman. I think she grew up in Georgia. Died young, died of uh, lupus, painful degenerative disease. And just to situate it, that would have been published a year after her death in 65. She probably wrote it sometime in the early 60s. And if you remember, Harper Lee published uh, To Kill a Mockingbird in 1960s. That, that kind of maybe maps it out a little bit for you. O'Connor is interesting because she's taken the view of a, a theologically informed, well-educated Catholic looking at a very, very exuberant, luxuriant, exotic form of religion. You could hardly call it Protestantism that existed around her, where you had a literal interpretation of the scriptures uh, lived by self-appointed prophets, who believed they were appointed by God. She was fascinated by all of this and fascinated by the, the way in which that worked out in the line of the largely Thomistic categories that she would have had. Uh, O'Connor is a hidden gem and you should discover her. Now she's, she's complex. She's a complex background. Her writing needs thought. 
She's describing there a woman, Mrs. Turpin, who is a bit like the Pharisees that we described a few episodes back. Mrs. Turpin is not a horrible person. Mrs. Turpin is a good Christian woman. She's kind. She's decent. She has, as she said herself, a little bit of everything and the good sense to use it well. She and her husband aren't wealthy, but their little farm is immaculate and they're nice to the... Uh, God, you struggle now to find a proper, uh, a proper way to refer to people that won't get you in jail. Um, she's nice to the African-American labourers who work on their farm. By inference, some white people aren't, but she prides herself on the fact that she is. She's nice even to the white trash, to the poor whites for whom she has no time and who occupy a position just slightly separate from the coloured people on the scale. But then she gets completely confused because the more she thinks about the complex class situation in, in the South, the more contradictory it appears and difficult to understand. But she is quite certain of her own goodness. And she has a terrible epiphany. She has a terrible moment in the doctor's clinic when a young girl who's waiting with her in the dispensary has a breakdown in front of her. She has a fit. And in a terrifyingly prophetic moment, she stares. She's been staring at Mrs. Turpin for a long time. Before she's sedated by the doctor who comes rushing out with his nurse to see what's happening, she shouts at Mrs. Turpin, get back to hell, you old warthog. It's a horrible thing to say to her. And it goes to the heart of her almost hidden fault line of doubt about her own righteousness. The doubt that maybe one's possession of the social virtues, of the virtues of the citizen, aren't enough. And maybe even what you have will be taken away from you because it wasn't enough. So this is a terrifying insight. O'Connor is superb on faith and redemption. But she's as frightening as Jesus Christ. I say with all respect. She is as frightening as that wonderful, terrible man who has saved us and who sees right through to the core of us. And part of the core is dark. Patrick White, the Australian novelist, published uh, an absolutely terrifying set of memoirs. Terrifying in the sense that he told the truth as he saw it about everyone he knew. And some people never spoke to him again and he called it flaws in the glass. It's always easier to see the flaws in other people. Do you ever notice in winter light, you know, when the light comes through the window? For a start, you see, you haven't washed the glass. You haven't washed the windows. Then you see that the windows were scraped before they ever were put in, or shortly after they were put in, which infuriates you. You'd be better off not seeing them. It's easier not to look at them. O'Connor saw the flaws in human nature, and there are flaws in O'Connor. There's a big controversy at the moment now. If I, I'm, I'm open to correction on this, but I think Georgetown University had a, a section or an institute named after, and I think they may be contemplating changing that, or they may have changed it. My first reaction hearing this was, oh, this is more of it. You know, this is more of this woke stuff. Well, see, the trouble about the woke stuff is like every heresy, as Chesterton said, it's a truth pressed on too hard. The woke stuff isn't coming from nowhere. Marxism didn't come from nowhere. People were being treated like dirt in the factories. People were being alienated. And it's true that, uh, for instance, gay people were treated appallingly in the past. Let us acknowledge that for a start. Because all, all of us, I hope, try to be decent people. We're not stupid enough to think that we're good people full stop. But we, we try to be decent people. So there are a whole load of truths there in the woke thing. 
And, and I mean, there's a tremendous history of racism. And let me add this. The Irish, we like to think, I, I think, that we wouldn't be racist. But we never much had much of the opportunity. And I wonder whether we're not just as capable of it as anyone else. You know, they would say that the Irish in, in America, for instance, uh, could be racist. But I don't know. I throw that out to you. But one thing is clear. Absolutely one thing is clear. The woke stuff isn't coming from nowhere. But it is a terrifying distortion of a truth. You have people so in love with justice that they will burn everybody. Even the Inquisition was in control. It had a control over it. This is out of control. This is a Salem that won't stop. It won't stop giving. And the hangings go on and on. And if you confess, you get hanged anyway. The problem is O'Connor's private correspondence. In her work, she does use the N-word. It's not there. It's, it's in, I'll read another excerpt, but I won't be using the N-word either. I'll just refer to it as I'm referring to it now. But she, she, she does use it in her work. She refers to it in her work, but it's reported speech. It's, it's, she's painting word pictures. She's giving you an impression of the mentality of somebody. She refers to white trash, but I'm not aware that anyone's complaining about that. Uh, I just make that point. I haven't heard anyone complain about that. But it appears that in her private correspondence, yes, unpublished correspondence, uh, she makes some comments which are surprising and unfortunate. You know, where she says she she doesn't particularly, she doesn't say black people are are inferior or anything, but she just says she doesn't particularly like them. And that's, that's unfortunate and it's sad. But does that mean that we don't read her work? I've just finished the third volume of Hilary Mantel's trilogy, which has basically made a saint of Thomas Cromwell, who was no saint. She has made a saint of him. And and she makes no bones about it. There was so little known about this deeply private and and elusive man who did so much harm to the church. And and she simply is an historical novelist, which is fair enough. She has painted the man she would like to see into those absences. And she has come out with this... Uh, Oh, jeepers, it's, it's like a, a cross between Buddha and, and Mussolini and uh, the child of Prague and I'm paraphrasing a professor I had once and you name it. I mean, he certainly hasn't come out badly out of it and she has knifed St. Thomas More. She has knifed him and she is such a gifted storyteller. And I wouldn't mind, but she has said in interviews she feels she's done well by Moore. Well, if that's being done well by, by Hilary Mantel, I'd hate to get on the wrong side of her. But she's gifted. She is a brilliant storyteller. She is Homer. She has taken her harp and sat by the fire and she has sung like Virgil of Arms and the Man. And she has done tremendous damage to the memory of Thomas More. And she has effected a huge sea change in the memory of Thomas Cromwell. Even people who would have loved the Catholic Church to get a good walloping would have stopped short at canonising Thomas Cromwell. And she can say as long as she wants that she hasn't canonised him. This is a work, a three-volume work of brilliant hagiography. Apparently she was brought up a Catholic. I think she hates the Church. I don't think she's a bad person. I'm not taken from her character. I'm just saying, she, as far as I can see, she hates the Church. If I'm wrong, fine. I'd love to be shown it. Just read the three novels. But she is a, oh, a storyteller par excellence, a fantastic historic novelist. Now, I read those three novels. I savoured the workmanship, the craftsmanship, even as I hated some of the things she was saying. I disbelieved some of them. 
I think Hilary Mantel's work is of the highest order in literary terms and it should be available and let everyone read it. But let everyone read the history, which you can be sure most people won't. <laughs> which is why we're banjaxed with this. And I think let everyone read Flannery O'Connor. And Flannery O'Connor in no way has done the same thing to black people in her novels. She certainly has not. But as I said, there are clearly things in her personal correspondence that are unfortunate. There are flaws in the glass. Look, we are never going to get anywhere if we run from the truth and keep weaponizing it like this against each other. We should serve the truth. You're never far from God where you look for the truth. Let's read all these great works. Let's read all of them. And so I'm, I'm put in mind of Caravaggio. You know, Caravaggio, the famous painter, a scoundrel. So some people will talk about him as if this was a kind of a romantic appeal that he had spent several years on the run. He had to go to Naples to escape the Papal Police. He ran from the Papal States. The Papal States were Rome and a good bit around it, to put it crudely. And uh, that was ruled by the Pope directly as a temporal prince. And he was on the run from the Papal Police. For what? For heresy? No. For murder. He was a scoundrel, he was a bowsy, he was a gurrier. He killed a man in a tavern brawl, I think. That's what he was on the run for. Caravaggio was a sensual, cruel, ruthless man. Gifted. And who knows why God gives these gifts to some and not to others, but he gave it to him. If you're in Rome, go into the church of San Luigi dei Francesi. It's near the Piazza Minerva. But do, do go into it, off the Corso. And go into that church, it's the, it's the French church in Rome. Go into the church of San Luigi dei Francesi and go on up to the altar and over to the left is the Contarelli Chapel and in that chapel are three Caravaggios. And one of them is the calling of St. Matthew. And it is absolutely superb. Now you have to put a euro into the machine to get the light to look at it and the tourists will all sort of step back and someone's fool enough to put in their euro and then everyone crowds in. But look, just spend your euro and shame them. Believe you me, this is worth seeing. Caravaggio's great ability was the use of chiaroscuro, as the Italians say, the play of light and shade. Chiaro means bright, oscuro means dark. Chiaroscuro, the play of light and shade, which is absolutely constitutive to a painting. And he had this tremendous ability to use, I think it's called tenebrism, to use shade, to use shadow. And it creates a remarkable effect because you don't see Jesus. You see Matthew at his counting and he's looking up and the light is falling on. Now, I'm suggesting to you here that first of all, why should you not look at Caravaggio because he, he was a murderer and he was a murderer? For goodness sake, will you look at, look at the paintings? We can't live like this. Great art is often done by unworthy people. Enjoy the paintings, which are profoundly spiritual. But in the same way, appreciate the play of light and shade in your own soul and everyone else's. And that is what Flannery O'Connor sang about. That's what Hilary Mantel sings about. And she sings about it brilliantly, if only she wouldn't keep adjusting the shade in the souls of the people she doesn't like and increasing the light for the ones she does. <laughs> Boy, Thomas Cromwell, there was plenty of shade there. Let's not forget that as Chesterton never stopped pointing out, it wasn't the little men who got the money from the demolition of the abbeys and the destruction of the monastic houses. It was the king's friends. It was used to buy off the great families and to make friends for the king. 
It was the great men who got the money, not the little man. The little man had been looked after by the monastery. But there you are. A corrective to Mantell's history would be Professor Eamon Duffy, if you ever come across it. A fantastic book called The Stripping of the Altars about the Catholic Church in England prior to the Reformation. This is what we need. I said the last episode, we need teachers. We need a teacher. We need a rabbinate. I'm telling you now, we need wandering shanakis, storytellers, and maybe it's the same thing. Maybe any good teacher is a frustrated storyteller. Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, never stopped telling stories. He told stories. He was talking to people, many of whom were illiterate. He was talking to the people whom the educated Jews would have called the Am Haaretz, the people of the land. The people who were referred to in Gaelic poetry as the buffoons, as the clowns, the clods, the rustici, the idiots, the culches, if you like. He was painting powerful word pictures that would stay in their minds, as the rabbis of the time did. We need wandering storytellers, wandering teachers. Every priest should be a shanachy in his heart. As somebody said about his grandfather, oh, he has one story to tell and the whole day to tell it. They say a priest really has only one sermon in him. In the same way as they say about a novelist, they have one novel in them. They find a hundred ways of telling the same story, giving the same sermon. Pope St. John Paul pointed out that the primary duty of the priest was to preach the gospel. He does that in the mass without any personal involvement of that kind. The mass isn't the priest's story to tell but he tells the story by his action and the story becomes flesh, real. Because as I cannot stop emphasising in this age of heterodoxy and, and confusion, it is the belief and teaching of the Catholic Church consistently through its history that the bread and wine in a validly celebrated Mass, by implication a validly ordained priest, becomes the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. This happens during the words of institution. The storytelling centres in on that and it never goes away from it. The priest is constantly telling the story of him, capital H, constantly talking about him. Arms I sing and the man. Or as the old singers used to say, come gather round me lads and lassies, list unto my song. Gather round and listen. For I have a tale to tell, I have a song to sing. The priest is talking, singing, incessantly of him. Catholic teachers should be talking, incessantly, of him. We need shanachis, storytellers, singers, telling, singing of him. We need writers, writing of him. When Pasolini, the, the Italian film director whose personal life was certainly no, it wouldn't bear close looking at. When he made that wonderful film, which you should see, The Gospel According to St. Matthew, I think it was in 1962, you can correct me on that. He won an International Vatican Prize, a gold medal for filmmaking. I'm telling you, it's back we're going. We had awards for filmmaking. There should be awards for the Catholic novel. And the Catholic novel can be about anything because the word Catholic means universal. There should be awards for the Catholic. Now, we should have a bit more confidence in this. I, we are getting our backsides handed to us on a plate in the, in the cultural wars. This is the Kulturkampf. 
We've talked about this before. We've been beaten in the humanities. We've been beaten in, in the faculties of English and history and all the rest of it. And it's the Hilary Mantel's gifted and brilliant people. They have the day. Their songs are being played. Their stories are being told. We have the greatest story ever told, the greatest song ever written. And who will hear it if it is not told, if it is not sung? You're not going to get a perfect person to do this. People will go on, for instance, there are many reasons that you might pick on. I pick my words carefully here. There are reasons you might pick on, many reasons, if you wished to criticise Medjugorje, let's say, and the whole phenomenon there, fair enough. And people will say, oh, none of the visionaries became priests or, or religious. Okay, how many of the visionaries in Nock became priests or religious? The visionaries at La Salette didn't turn out particularly well. So where does it say a visionary has to be a saint? Some of them are. When are we going to get it into our heads that while we are all called to sanctity, the Holy Spirit blows where it will? It chooses whom it wants. It chooses some of the most extraordinary people. One of the great, and this is a misunderstanding of my thing, but one of the great patron saints of the modern cultural Catholicism is Thomas Merton. Let me tell you, Thomas Merton wasn't the nicest to men when he was a young man. He was turned down initially by the Franciscans and he tells the story straight up in the Seven Story Mountain in his, in his biography. He was turned down by the Franciscans when he told them about his past. But my understanding is he had fathered a child in London and he abandoned them. That's my understanding. There was a side to Merton that wasn't that nice. And yet Merton had a, was called to become a Catholic. He was called to become a monk, to become a contemplative and to write as a contemplative. And he did great service to the Lord. The service is compromised and the, what service is not compromised? I always think of as my Pope, Pope St. John Paul, whom I have no trouble in believing as the church believes and has defined that he is a saint. But things happened under John Paul. Decisions were made or not made or whatever that could have been made better. He was a saint. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't God. So these people will always be flawed. Evelyn Waugh, the Catholic novelist, he could be a horrible man. He's a great novelist. One of the great temptations is that we are called to believe in perfection, to strive for perfection, but we have to remember that perfection is impossible to the human being by their own efforts. That's not to say that we can't achieve great things, but it takes grace to perfect nature. Grace perfects nature. And grace is God himself given as a gift, self-giving of God. And so what I'm calling for here today is a new Aesthana. Now, what are the Aesthana? Well, Aesthana is a project of the Irish government, for a start. We start in our own age. It's a project of the Irish government to support writers and to recognise them, a bit like the French Academy. Aesthana comes from a Gaelic phrase, and it refers to the bold, the gifted class of Gaelic society which was highly stratified and part of which was the what we would now call the intelligentsia, the writers, the brehans, the judges, all these people, the poets, the philly. We need that. We need a new Catholic intellectual class. Uh, somebody said that uh, Flann O'Brien and, and Paddy Cavan and those when they were the writers, when they were roistering around 1950s Dublin, going from pub to pub. Uh, apparently there were a set of pubs around Trinity College or then striking distance of Trinity College. I think 14 pubs, which were known as the Stations of the Cross. 
and they were going on the tear in each of these pubs. You had a pint in each of them and you had to keep going. I think McDade's was one of their favourite places, maybe the Palace. But apparently they used to wear a particular type of hat. And it was a hat that you could buy in the clerical department in Cleary's. And it had a slightly wider brim. It was worn by clergy. And they would deliberately wear these black hats. Because the Eastona were of the same class as the clergy. The poets were classed with the clergy. And the clergy, of course, were very prestigious at the time in Ireland. Something that the, these writers would have been ambivalent about anyway. Like Kavanagh had a deep faith. Oh, Nolan, I don't know. You wouldn't know with him, I'd say. But Kavanagh had a very deep faith. And that's what I'm talking about. We need a Catholic intelligentsia, a Catholic rabbinate, a Catholic teacher, which is not going to be simply the priesthood. Any priest should be able to go in and out of this class. But the priesthood is something else again. But this group of people should be dedicated to the telling of the story, whether it's in teaching or writing or film directing or filmmaking or painting or poetry or song. It should be dedicated to telling the story of God's passionate love affair with humanity and his, the numerous ups and downs of that relationship. Again, I've said this before, like I see in our Catholic schools, we, we are sending our students, they, our, our schools run the risk of ending up being prisoners of their own success. And we're going to end up running grind schools and we're funneling kids endlessly into medicine and law and all of these high prestige courses. And there are high dropout rates from some of them because you're putting square pegs into round holes in many cases, because these are the prestigious professions and they're right to be prestigious medical professions has a priestly quality to it. They're right to be prestigious. But we are going to bitterly regret our contempt for the arts. Because now the story is being told by others. And the story, the irony is that the, the, the professions I've listed are listening to these storytellers. There is a woke culture now dictating terms within the medical profession and others, which originates not from the medical profession, but from the humanities and the social sciences. You can argue this point with me if you like, but I honestly do think that I have a perfectly respectable point there. If the humanities are so contemptible, how come that real power is being exercised from that quarter? And I can assure you it's not friendly to us or to the faith. And we have only ourselves to blame there for the way in which we sold out. The traditional Catholic education was rooted in the liberal arts and sciences, in a broad education, as new men outlined in the idea of a university. Not in this, in this uh, far too early specialisation, this, this narrowing, far too, with the Irish education system uh, at least is superior to many others in that respect, in that it is still quite broad even by leaving, sir. And so it is absolutely crucial. Like, for, for instance, I would ask, how much thought is being put into the appointment of chaplains, of Catholic chaplains in university? Next question. Is there any point to having Catholic chaplains in university, given the way in which they'd be controlled once they're paid by the university? Third question, if there isn't, how do we conduct apostolate in the universities? Fourth question, has anyone worked out how to conduct apostolate in pubs? Because that would be a good place to start. Particularly on is it Donegal Tuesday, where they're all in pubs, in NUIG anyway. I think we've been beaten off the field there and I think it's tacitly understood. We go on appointing chaplains, but the chaplains have an impossible job. We're not giving any specialised training for it anyway. I would have now known to be a university chaplain who is not already an accomplished storyteller. 
whether that's in uh, writing or speaking or song, but who, who in some way would have a tremendous ability to communicate the story. And the story is of him, capital H. The story is of him. So instead of pouring people indiscriminately into medicine, law, finance, technology, all of them crucial areas, I don't question for a second. I'm just questioning as to why, whether everyone has to go into it or not. I think it's a reasonable question. We need more storytellers. We need more professors of history. We need more professors of Irish and English literature. We need more novelists who are believers. Pierce Paul Reed in England. I mean, there are only a handful of believers now writing. There are only a handful. This is, not a, this is not good. We have been neglectful. I'll give you an example of one extra curriculum. I ran a school which was heavily sport oriented and I bought into that and I have no regrets about it. It's a boys school and sport is good for boys. Team sports are good for boys. But they're not good for all boys. They're not even interesting to all boys. I'll tell you something that you mightn't think but actually the boys hugely enjoy and are quite good at it and it's an intellectual contact sport is debating. Now rhetoric, the art of public speaking and debate, should be a core, as it was in classical times, a core part of the Catholic educational programme. And we should have, as the Jesuits had in their early schools, a ratio studiorum. We, we should have our own Catholic curriculum, if you like. Because, I mean, if, if we're honest, we're looking at a time when, when Catholic schools will not be state-supported. There'll only be a few of them and they'll be private. And for that, you're going to say, oh, you're going on about teachers again. I am and I am not. I'm elaborating on last week in the sense that I'm saying we're going to need teachers who are storytellers, who can tell the story. And I don't care whether they're teaching business or maths or whatever else it is, they, they are still telling the story. But we're also going to need storytellers who aren't teachers. This is absolutely crucial. I'm just going to sum it up in something in one word that sums up the point I was making earlier where you see a whole load of departments and universities running scared from the woke stuff that has originated in the allegedly powerless and irrelevant humanities. And I'm telling you that what we have discovered is that the pen is mightier than the scalpel. We were foolish to disrespect it. And we are paying for our disrespect. It's true what Charlie Hawley said. Power slips through the fingers of those who are afraid to use it. Now you're going to say back to me, oh, it's all about power with you. I'm mean, sorry, hold on a second. It's all about power with them. That whole programme is heavily Marxist in its intellectual origin and it is deeply concerned with power. So it would behove everyone else to be very concerned with it because you'll be a subject of that power. And it's not a dead art. Look, the situation is bad. It's, it's not a blasted heath. It's not Mordor. It's not, it's not absolutely barren, okay? Even in the burn, some rare plants manage to grow in the fissures and cracks. Is it limestone? I think it's limestone. And so we have John Waters, a man who has suffered enormously for his craft, suffered for his integrity, for his fidelity to the Catholic faith. David Quinn, fantastic journalist, the Iona Institute, and there are others. But not enough. We need more. We need novelists, even if they are not Orthodox Catholics, who will at least be obsessed, and rightly so, with the great questions of life. If we can't even produce that, we're banjaxed. And there's no point talking about Catholic education after that. Here's something else we need. I've, again, this is reprising a theme. 
Where are the Catholic stand-up comedians? You're saying you can't be a stand-up comedian and a Catholic. Why? Because you subscribe to an orthodoxy? Like every stand-up comedian presently operating? Which they do. You could be a fantastic comedian as a Catholic because Catholicism has lived right on the edge and any comedian worth a damn lives on the edge. This is how you tell the story. This is how it is most powerfully told in, in cabarets and bars and stand-up comedy in, in brilliant journalism in novels, short stories, films and so on. In music. And now you're going to say to me, oh, you, really what you're talking about is a school of propaganda. No, it's not that simple. I take your point and it's dangerous. I accept that. But then anything worth a damn is dangerous. I take your point. There are dangers here. And something can become propaganda. I think of George Orwell and the way he was scandalised during the Spanish Civil War by the, the propaganda on his own side, let alone on the other side. And by their carry-on of the Stalinist propagandists. The disregard for the truth. Now this should be in love with the truth, which is a terrible thing to be in love with and burns out all its lovers. You're like a moth with a flame with the truth, but if we're not, we're not Catholic. And even if the truth doesn't suit bishops or cardinals or pope, the truth has to be somehow served. The story must somehow be told. And there isn't a single one of us who's worthy to tell it. There isn't a single one of us who can't be pulled up on something. There isn't a single one of us telling the story who can't be shouted at and heckled. There is no choice here. You have to face your demons and keep talking about them. I've noticed a row between two very eminent Catholic communications people in the States. And I was very sad to see it. And one of the things that centred around and I'm sure there's fault on both sides, but one of the things that centred around was that one would not meet the other because he was so um, right-wing and extreme. I would just say that we, we really do need to be talking to each other. I don't know whether we can afford to be that grand. You know, I'm not meeting you because you're extreme. You can, you can call anyone extreme. That's easy to throw around. It's better that genuine Catholics are talking to each other. So I, I disagree with a lot of what Michael Voris goes on with. But at the same time, I think Voris is a gifted man and I think he's a very sincere man. And he often has a point, even if in my view he goes too far with it. That's my view. I'm entitled to my view, he's entitled to his. This isn't a matter of orthodoxy. He's a very orthodox Catholic, actually. He knows his theology. He's a degree in theology from Notre Dame. That conversation should include all of us. I don't agree with some of the stuff Taylor Marshall goes on with. I think he's too hard. And I think as somebody else called him, he is a bit extreme. But he's a very gifted guy. He's very sincere. He's paid a high price. He was a Lutheran clergyman, became a Catholic. He gave up a lot for his convictions. I think a guy like that's a serious player. And he has to be somehow negotiated with. I'm just saying, for God's sake, let's not start some sort of a prima donna squabble among the storytellers. But that's a classic. It's a pure classic. You have all these divas and divos. I can't work in these conditions. I'm not talking to him. Oh, I'm not talking to him. I'm orthodox. I'm more orthodox than you are. We go down that road, where's it going to go? For goodness sake, there are so few of us. I pray and I would ask you to pray that these genuinely talented and gifted people get on a bit better and that we respect more 
Some people regard it as a cacophony, as a bizarre and grotesque hubbub of voices. I love the sound of the church. I love the almighty racket that is the church. Squabbling and quarrelling and in spite of itself telling the story. That's what we should be at and we should recognise other storytellers when we meet them and we should respect them. I go back to Flannery O'Connor. Mrs Turpin is outraged by what the girl said to her in the dispensary in the clinic. But it touches a fault line of doubt within her about her own righteousness. She's not at peace when she goes back to her house. I'm going to read now, there's a decent bit of it. O'Connor's short story ends with a much quoted and famous few paragraphs. And I'll, I'll just quote them for you. Until the sun slipped finally behind the tree line, Mrs Turpin remained there with her gaze bent to them as if she was absorbing some abysmal life-giving knowledge. At last, she lifted her head. There was only a purple streak in the sky cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. She raised her hands from the side of the pen in a gesture hieratic and profound. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it a vast horde of souls were tumbling towards heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and the hands of black in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. Bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognised at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they always had been for good order and common sense and respectable behaviour. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces, even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment the vision faded, but she remained where she was. At length she got down and turned off the faucet, and in her slow way on the darkening path to the house. In woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, But what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting, Hallelujah. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. St. Brendan, pray for us. Mm -hmm.